All right. Uh, today we're going to go over the assignment for your first essay, and I'm going to analyze a couple of sonnets from the Romantic period. Uh, now you'll find the essay assignment sheet on the web page uh, for the class under Assignments, Essay 1 on a 19th century sonnet. I've given you a list of 19th century sonnets. Those are sonnets from either the Romantic or the Victorian period. And I'd like you to pick one of those and to write a detailed analysis of it. Now, in a good analysis, you're going to be connecting poetic devices in the poem with the ideas and emotions that it's conveying to its readers. So you're looking at the form of the poem as well as its content. It's not just the, the you know, what the poem means, what the themes are, what, what the argument is, but how the author has styled the material, how they're presenting it and manipulating it as a piece of language. That's something I'd like you to focus on for your essay. In the uh, essay, you need to quote the whole sonnet early in your essay so that you have, so that, uh, I can see it and know which one you're talking about. And in the body of your analysis, you should, again, refer to it frequently. Uh, do If you have a lot of quotations from the sonnet in your paper, that's probably a very good sign. Uh, start the paper out with a genuine question about how the sonnet works. And that question can be the last sentence of your first paragraph. And then the rest of the essay is going to be your answer to that question. Uh, have it have a clear, well-organized answer that you give. And each paragraph can deal with a specific element of the sonnet that helps answer your question. You'll explain how that element works, and all, every paragraph should also, therefore, have a good topic sentence that explains what it's doing. Uh, the final paragraph, you'll draw the conclusions that you've made about the sonnet and sum up the answer to the question that you posed at the in the first paragraph. Now, you'll see also on the website under handouts that I have a sample essay that follows this format. It's it's not about a sonnet, but it will show you the uh, how a, a, an essay like this would be laid out. So please refer to that. When you're doing your analysis, the first thing you need to do is to read whichever sonnet you choose to talk about slowly, read it carefully, and then read it over again and keep doing that. Uh, and that will allow you to find some interesting observations to make about it. For this essay, the more specific you are, the better. Uh, look for small particular details. Uh, focus on individual words that might have multiple meanings or uh, a particular simile or metaphor and uh, try to unpack what it means. Uh, you might look at uh, how the, the syntax of the poem, the arrangement of the words works. It, something very specific like that. And then give your insights into that specific detail. But everything that you say should relate directly to the words on the page. Don't uh, get sidetracked talking about big ideas or themes. Stay close to the words. Uh, as for your writing style, I'd like you to be as clear and as concise as you can be. Uh, a lot of students, I think, waste time trying to sound impressive with their prose. Uh, and that usually is just a waste of time. The most impressive thing to me is a clear, concise argument. Uh, so do that instead of trying to impress me with your verbal dexterity. I mean, seriously, I, I study the greatest literature that's ever been written for a living. You're, you're not likely to dazzle me with your prose. You might dazzle me with your uh, clear and concise insights, though. Uh, don't in your in the writing style, your, your tone should be a a conversational voice. This will also help you from trying to sound too impressive. Uh, imagine that you're talking to somebody about a subject that you're really interested in. That's the kind of tone. Clear, engaging, 
plain spoken. Uh, don't get, get on your soapbox and try to sound impressive. And don't make the essay any longer than what you have to say. Uh, a single sentence that really says something is a lot more impressive to me than a paragraph that doesn't. So make every word count. Now, when I evaluate your essay, I'm going to be looking at how intelligent and specific your ideas are, how precise your analysis of the sonnet is, how clear your prose is, and your thesis. Is it is it an original thesis? Is it persuasive? Did you demonstrate the thesis? Um, now, the length for this paper should be between 500 to 800 words, and that's not counting the sonnet that you quote at the start of the paper. Uh, I'd like you to use MLA format, and you'll see that the, on the uh, assignment sheet there's a, a link to uh, a section of my website that talks about MLA style, uh, particularly uh, sections on document format, uh, citation format, uh, quoting verse, and documenting sources. Um, you only have one source for this paper. It'll be well. Uh, it'll be the the poem from the Norton Anthology that you're uh, talking about. Um, now you will submit the paper on the Blackboard site through the Turnitin link. It's uh, Essay One, Nineteenth Century Sonnet. So that should be easy to find. Uh, now a word about the the due dates here. You'll see that I have two different due dates, and here's the thinking behind this: the final deadline for the essay is March 10th. Everybody has to have the, the uh, paper in by March 10th or it gets a zero. But if you would like to have more detailed feedback from me on your paper, I'd like you to submit your paper a little bit early. Uh, so if you submit it before February 27th, then I will uh, make comments and, and detailed feedback on your essay. Uh, now, this is not so that you can use the feedback and then resubmit the essay. That's not what I'm doing here, uh, though that's a very good exercise in some classes. Uh, this is basically a way that I deal with the fact that uh, online classes are not limited by classroom size. So there are, can be over 100 students enrolled in the class. Uh, and I, I want to grade all of your papers and read them carefully, but it takes me a lot longer to comment on them carefully. So uh, I'd like those who really want the comments, uh, I'm happy to give them. Uh, but if the comments are not desperately important to you, or if you just want the extra time to complete the assignment, uh, you can turn it in on March 10th. Uh, all right. Now, the next section in the uh, assignment sheet is a checklist on how to analyze a sonnet. Uh, now, the worst thing you could do for your paper is to just go through one by one and mechanically answer these questions. That's not what this is for. This is to give you ideas about things you could talk about in your sonnet. You certainly won't talk about all of these. You should probably pick two or three specific things that you want to talk about for your paper. But the first few, the first uh, um, three or four of these are things that every one of you should do when you're preparing your analysis. First of all, just read through the sonnet for meaning. What does it mean? Uh, look at, read it sentence by sentence instead of line by line. Uh, you know, look for subjects and verbs and forget a minute about all the poetry and the metaphors and all that. Then, Write out your own modern English prose paraphrase of the sonnet and actually do this in writing. That will force you to really think about what the words mean in your sonnet. Uh, but you don't need to include that in your paper. In fact, I'd rather you didn't. Then think about what kind of sonnet it is. Uh, we're going to be, uh, uh, I'm going to be talking about that in, in a minute, uh, but look at what the, the form of it is. Is it an Italian rhyme scheme, an English rhyme scheme? Uh, how, how is it uh, set up? Uh, what's the organization of it? Uh, and, and then think about the, 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 the context of the poem. Uh, what is happening? When did this happen? Why is it happening? Who? What's what's the situation that the poet is in? Uh, those are things that all all of you should do as you're writing your paper. Uh, 
Now, the rest of these are different things, and they may be more or less relevant for particular sonnets. Uh, but they're standard literary uh, things to look at. You can look at irony. Is there a discrepancy between what the words say and what we know they mean? Uh, look at the tone. How does the, how does the speaker feel about what they're talking about? Uh, the diction, the words, and the word meanings and connotations. Uh, and you can use the Oxford English Dictionary, uh, which is available through the library uh, website. Uh, it's a very good historical dictionary because it gives you not just th- what the words mean, but when they meant it. So it'll give you the history of the word and how it's changed over time. And that can be very useful when you're dealing with things that are you know, 100 and 150 years old. Um, look at imagery, figurative language, figures of speech, uh, allusions, all this kind of stuff, you know, normal English major kind of stuff. Uh, the syntax, how the words are arranged, the meter, uh, what the, all of that, the rhyme scheme, other kinds of sound patterns. All of that stuff is fair game if you can find something interesting to say about it. Uh, just telling me this is the meter of the poem is not really interesting. If you tell me the reason that the meter is interesting or what it does for the poem, that would be good. And in fact, for all of these, the real question you're asking is, how does this work? What does it do? How does it contribute to the poem? Now, the last page of the assignment sheet is the list of 19th century sonnets that are available in the Norton Anthology. I'm pretty sure it's a comprehensive list. Uh, If you find a a sonnet that's not on here, that's in the Norton Anthology, let me know and I may okay that. Uh, And if you have questions, you can, of course, uh, uh, email them to me and I'll try to address them. All right, the next thing that I would like to do is to talk to you a little bit about the sonnet form itself, what a sonnet is and how you kind of identify and analyze it. Uh, You'll find a uh, uh, handout on this under the handouts page in the uh, website. So let's talk about a sonnet. What is a sonnet? Well, a sonnet is a 14-line poem written in iambic pentameter that follows a strict rhyme scheme. 14 lines, pretty straightforward. You count the lines. If it's got 14, it could be a sonnet. Iambic pentameter... Uh, let's unpack that. What does pentameter mean? Penta is a word meaning five, like the a pentagon or the pentagram. And uh, meter means meter, so that's five beats. Uh, and that were five f- metrical feet. A, a foot in uh, metrical language means one stressed syllable plus one or more unstressed syllables in a particular repeating pattern. So iambic, that tells you what the pattern is. Iambic, it's the most common uh, meter in English. Uh, It's an unstressed syllable followed by a stressed syllable. So some iambic words are belief, arise, defend, prepare, conceive. Uh, You can hear they have an unstressed and then a stressed syllable. So Iambic pentameter just means five units of that, you know. Uh, And I give some examples here, standard iambic pentameter lines. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? You know, shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Now, when you say it like that, it sounds awful. But one of the virtues of iambic pentameter in English is that it can maintain a rhythm without being kind of thumping and feeling overly regular. Because to keep the rhythm going, all you need is just a little bit of variation. It doesn't have to be a lot stronger uh, uh, than the unstressed syllable, but just a little bit, and it'll keep the, the rhythm going. Uh, there are also some uh, some fairly common variations in iambic pentameter that you, you may see, and they tend to happen at the beginnings and ends of lines. So uh, a at the end of the line, you may have an extra unstressed syllable. That's called a feminine ending. Uh, So, again, from Shakespeare's sonnet 20, a woman's face with nature's own hand painted. Hear that painted, that little unstressed ted at the end of the line. Uh, And uh, 
feminine endings tend to be anticlimactic. Uh, another famous Shakespeare line, to be or not to be, that is the question. It kind of ends on a question. Now, the other common variation is an initially stressed syllable uh, that kind of gets the line started off with a strong beat. Um, so, uh, John Donne's poem, Batter my heart, three-personed God, for you. And again, that first syllable, batter my heart. Uh, that's a, a very common variation. And those are, it's still iambic pentameter, even if it has one of those variations. That's Those are just kind of part of the game. All right, so we know that the poem has 14 lines. We know it's got the de-dum, 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 uh, iambic pentameter rhythm. What about the strict rhyme scheme? Well, there are three main rhyme schemes uh, that you'll find with sonnets. Uh, the most common is the Italian sonnet rhyme scheme. It began in, in Italy, uh, and it falls into two r rhymed sections within the sonnet. An octave, a group of eight lines, and those eight lines will just have two rhyming sounds, and a sestet with six lines, and that will have two or three rhymes. It's a little flexible that way. And you'll see on the handout that I give you some examples of how those uh, 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 rhyme schemes can sometimes uh, fall out. Uh, now, very often in an Italian sonnet, in an Italian sonnet, the rhyme scheme will echo the structure of the poem. That is, the first eight lines, the octave, uh, give one position, and then there's a turn on the ninth line, or the, the Italian word for that is a volta, and then the last six lines, the sestet, reply to the first eight lines, so it has kind of a nice balanced feeling to it. Now, not all sonnets that have that rhyme scheme follow that pattern, but a lot of them do. It's something you should be on the lookout for. Now, the other very, very common uh, rhyme scheme is the English sonnet rhyme scheme. This is the one that Shakespeare, it's sometimes called the Shakespearean uh, rhyme scheme. Uh, and this one divides not into eight and six, but into three groups of four and one group of two. That is three quatrains, uh, four lines with alternating rhymes, and a closing rhymed couplet. So the English, you saw the Italian sonnet has can have a lot of variations in the rhyme, but the English sonnet is very, very strict. It's always A, B, A, B, C, D, C, D, E, F, E, F, G, G. Uh, that's became popular in English uh, poetry uh, because English is not as rhyme-rich a language as Italian is. Uh, Italian has all those wonderful vowel sounds at the ends of words that makes it very easy to create uh, rhyme schemes. Uh, English is not quite that way, and so not having to come up with you know uh, eight eight words and eight lines with just two rhymes, uh, it's a lot easier when you've got an English sonnet and you can just do four four four. All right, now the final uh, uh, common sonnet rhyme scheme is the Spenserian sonnet. That's, this is for Edmund Spencer, the Renaissance poet, uh, who invented this rhyme scheme, and some others have used it. Uh, it's a kind of a variation on the Shakespearean rhyme scheme. It's got three quatrains, but they're interlocking quatrains. So it rhymes A-B-A-B, and then the next one lines BC, BC. You see the second quatrain picks up a rhyme from the first one. Then the third one goes CD, CD. And it ends with a rhyming couplet. Uh, so you can tell which of those kinds of sonnet it is just by looking at the rhyme scheme. Now, I should also tell you that by the Romantic period, uh, though many of the sonneteers that you, you'll be looking at used one of these particular rhyme schemes, sometimes they did variations of them, uh, sometimes they made up their own rhyme scheme, uh, so you'll have to be on the lookout for that. Uh, but generally, most of the sonnets that you look at will fall into one of those three patterns. All right, now I would like to look at a couple of particular sonnets that were written by two of the most important romantic poets. And 
go through an analysis of these. And I want this both to be as kind of a model for you to use when you're writing your essay and also serve as an introduction to the Romantic poets. So let's start with William Wordsworth's poem, his sonnet, composed upon Westminster Bridge, September 3rd, 1802. Uh, now, the title itself is significant, right? It's telling you where and when this poem happened. And uh, both of these sonnets, as we'll see, are about the poet reflecting on how an experience has affected them. In this case, uh, Wordsworth is in London. He's on Westminster Bridge, and he's looking at the city uh, just before dawn and reflecting on it. Uh, so let me first of all just read through the sonnet itself. Earth has not anything to show more fair. Dull would he be of soul who could pass by a sight so touching in its majesty. This city now doth, like a garment, wear the beauty of the morning, silent, bare, ships, towers, domes, theaters and temples lie open unto the fields and to the sky, all bright and glittering in the smokeless air. Never did sun more beautifully steep in his first splendor, valley, rock, or hill. Ne'er saw I, never felt a calm so deep. The river glideth at his own sweet will. Dear God, the very houses seem asleep, and all that mighty heart is lying still. So the poem is about the the effect of seeing the the beauty of this city of London, and how it affects him, and how it's it's very similar, in some ways more impressive than the beauty of the natural world. Uh, but rather than you know talking about the kind of the big thematic things about the poem, I want to go through first just line by line and think about how the the sonnet works on us as we're hearing it. Now, if we look at the rhyme scheme, we're going to see that this is an Italian sonnet. That is, it has a series of eight lines, an octave that have two rhyme sounds that rhyme A, B, A, B, A, B, A, B. And then it has a sestet, uh, a group of six lines. In this case, they rhyme with two new rhyme sounds, C, D, C, D, C, D. All right. Now, let me go through the poem line by line. Earth has not anything to show more fair. Now, notice that that's a complete thought. Uh, it, it's, it's finished, done. It's a full logical unit. Line number two. Dull would he be of soul who could pass by. Uh, that also is a complete thought, a complete sentence. Line three. A sight so touching in its majesty. Oh, okay, so that line two was not a complete thought. There was more to say. It's expanding what happens. It continues and completes what happened in line two. And notice the word majesty. It doesn't really exactly rhyme with the word by. In fact, I think the first time you hear this poem, that's not even what, what they sometimes call an off rhyme or a slant rhyme. Uh, because to your ears, the first time you hear this, the poem hasn't even established that it's rhyming yet, so you're not primed to hear those. Line four. The city now doth like a garment wear. Okay, this is the first line that is clearly not a complete thought. It's inviting you to go on to the next line. Uh, the, the, it's, the, the poem is definitely incomplete in its syntax. Uh, and by presenting a rhyme for fair, which is the last word in line one, uh, it's very definitely a complete line. It's completing something. So it feels incomplete because it, it, it's an incomplete thought, but it also gives you a sense of completion because it completes the rhyme. All right, line five. The beauty of the morning, silent, bare. Ah, now we've got a completion for the for the line uh, four, um, and because bear and wear rhymes, 
line five is giving us a new formal unit, a, a, a rhymed couplet inside of this poem. Now, line six, ships, towers, domes, theaters, and temples lie. That doesn't sound very finished. Uh, it's not likely that somebody would say that as a sentence, but uh, you know, theoretically, it is a complete syntax. Uh, line seven, open unto the fields and to the sky. That continues and completes the syntax of line six. Uh, and because sky and lie rhyme, line seven completes another formal unit, another couplet for our ears to hear. Then line eight, last line of the octave, all bright and glittering in the smokeless air. All right, that is final in all ways. Uh, the syntax is a freestanding uh, exclamation uh, that uh, doesn't need any more completion. And the, the end of the line also completes the rhyme scheme. We have the fair, where, bear, air. Uh, and I think probably by this time, if we if we stop to think about it, which probably you wouldn't, uh, you, you would take by and majesty as a a slant rhyme. Now that you've seen that the rest of the poem fits that pattern. Now we go on to the sestet. Never did sun more beautifully steep. That's a new start, both the the syntax and a new rhyme sound. We get eep. Uh, so line nine requires some completion. It's not a full thought. And now our ears are expecting it to, uh, for there to be some rhymes coming up as well. In his first splendor, valley, rock, or hill. Okay, well that completes the syntax, but it doesn't give us a rhyme yet. Then line 11. Ne'er saw I never felt a calm so deep. Now that's a complete sentence, a complete syntax, and it provides a nice rhyme for steep, but we've still got hill waiting for a rhyme. Line 12, the river glideth at his own sweet will, another complete syntax, and we've got a rhyme for hill, so we, the, the, the patterns of rhyme are chiming nicely in our ears too. Then we get the final couplet. Dear God, the, the very houses seem asleep, and all that mighty heart is lying still. Okay, now both steep and hill have already had rhyme sounds, so that makes this couplet feel like it's an, an extra added rhyme. Now, of course, if we know the rules of the, the sonnet form, we kind of knew they were coming. But for the, the ear that just hears this, I think it's, it's, like a, it's almost like a bonus that we get in, that, in those last two lines. All right, so that's kind of how the, the sequence of the, the lines work out in the rhyme scheme and the syntax. But I want to go and, through and look at a few of the kind of patterns of extra verbal richness that uh, Wordsworth has woven into the poem. And these are the kinds of details that you might uh, expand on if you were writing an essay on this sonnet. Uh, look at the sequence in line, starting in line one, uh, Earth has not anything to show more fair. Then in line five, we get the beauty of the morning. And in line nine, we have more beautifully steep. So we have more fair and more beautifully. Okay, those obviously, both the repetition of more and the fact that fair and beautiful are synonyms, link those together. And in between those, we have beauty of the morning. Well, beauty and beautiful are variations of the same word and both related to fair. And the sound of more in mourning is there as well. Now, that little vocal pattern doesn't really mean anything. I don't think there's a deep symbolic meaning there, but it's an example of how the texture of the poem is woven together. That's what we say that uh, poetry sounds good. That's usually what we're talking about. It's those very subtle verbal patterns that where everything seems to fit together just right. 
Uh, and Wordsworth and most great poets are very, very good at that. Uh, look at some other examples of this kind of vocal richness. Uh, in lines one and two, Earth has not anything to show more fair. Dull would he be of sight. Dull would he be of soul. Um, okay, the word fair and the word dull kind of fit together, right? Uh, dull is kind of the opposite of fair. Now, dull is not used as the opposite of fair in the in line two, but the the potential for it to be kind of links the lines together. Or look at line three, a sight so touching in its majesty. Think about the different senses appealed to there, sight and touch. Now, we know here that touching means emotionally touching, not physically touching. But there is a little kind of friction there between the sense of sight and the sense of touch and how they they fit together and don't fit together all at the same time. Uh, Into line four, the city now doth like a garment. Now, I think for a minute, our minds here like a garment as if it's going to be a simile. In some ways, the city is like a garment. Then that changes, just like a garment, wear the beauty of the morning. Oh, okay, so no, it's not like a garment. It is wearing the beauty of the morning, which is like a garment that the city is wearing. Again, that's not a huge deal, but it's a little bit of extra mental exercise that your brain gets as you're moving through the poem. And again, I think that's another thing that poems do that make people like them. Um, at the end of line five, we have this this list, the last word of line five, silent, bare. Well, we've just been talking about garments and wearing things, and the word bare, uh, meaning unclothed, comes in there. Uh, so that kind of fits together. Another little correspondence. Um, look at line seven, open unto the fields and to the sky. Okay, first of all, that presents a nice contrast, fields and sky. We have horizontal extension and vertical extension. So they those are parallel, but also different. And even the, the sounds of it, unto and and to, right? Those sound alike, but aren't quite. And in fact, the word unto and the word to in the line are interchangeable, except that it would mess up the rhythm. Uh, so again, it, very complexly, these things are alike and different. They're little subtle variations. All of these things that give a, a rich verbal texture to the language. Uh, look, uh, starting in line nine, you see, never did sun more beautifully steep. All right, the word steep here, uh, it, it, that's a word that means uh it has liquid connotations. It means soak, uh, saturate, flood. But it's used in context not of water, but of light. Uh, we do that all the time. You know, that's why we talk about sunbathing. Uh, so steep is a word that activates ideas of water in our minds. But then it becomes the, uh, the splendor, in his first splendor, the sun is doing the steeping. So it's not water, but light. Uh, but then we get valley, rock, or hill. Well, that activates another meaning of the word steep, that is precipitous. We ha might have a steep hill, right? Now, again, it doesn't literally mean that, but the word is there and the idea is there and it fits together with that list of valley, rock, or hill. Um, and it go the poem goes on the next couple of lines to talk about the river gliding, uh, well, okay, the river, now we're back to water. And so deep also relates to liquid, a deep ocean, uh, but it fits with the idea of steep, of being, you know, precipitous. And of course, deep and steep rhyme. Um, so again, all of those little kinds of uh, teeny little patterns, those little sparks of connection that happen in the language, uh, are things that you can uh, you can analyze in a really good poem. Here's another example in line 11. Ne'er saw I, never felt. Okay, think about 
those that that phrase ne'er saw I never felt. Uh, so we have what he saw, what he's seeing is outside of him. It's calm. What he felt is inside of him. That's calm. So he it's both inside and outside, and the the language ne'er and never are the same word, but they're not the same word. One is one syllable and one is two syllables. Uh, so what? Well, so what? Nothing, except that that's another little extra verbal complication, another little uh, correspondence or pattern or relationship that the poem gives your brain and your ears uh, that makes it engaging to you. Uh, look at the final line. Uh, the mighty heart is lying still. Um, well, that's, of course, literally a contradiction, right? A, a strong heart that's beating is not going to be still. A still heart would be a dead heart. So there's almost a kind of a, a paradox or a contradiction there. Um, but it also fits the idea of that idea of heartbeat is there because he's looking at the city in the morning and it's about to burst into activity. It's about to going be from be, go from being still to being active, which and of course at night it will become still again. So that idea of the heartbeat fits in with that. Um, all right, now I, there are some other things that I could uh, uh, talk about here because uh, with a good poem there are always more things you could talk about. But I want to go on to look at our next uh, romantic sonnet. All right, this is John Keats poem, his sonnet, on first looking into Chapman's Homer. Now, Chapman is a Renaissance poet who translated the ancient Greek uh, epics of Homer into English. So, uh, Keats is talking about the first time that he ever read this, uh, read Homer in this translation. Again, let me just read through the sonnet. Much have I traveled in the realms of gold, and many goodly states and kingdoms seen. Round many western islands have I been, which fair, which bards in fealty to Apollo hold. Oft of one wide expanse had I been told, that deep-browed Homer ruled as his demean. Yet did I never breathe its pure serene, till I heard Chapman speak out loud and bold. Then felt I like some watcher of the skies when a new planet swims into his ken, or like stout Cortez when, with eagle eyes, he stared at the Pacific, and all his men looked at each other with a wild surmise, silent upon a peak in Darien. All right. I want to talk about this poem in a way about kind of broader categories, not just going through line by line, but talking about what are some strategies you would use for understanding and unpacking a poem like this. And the first one, and I mentioned this in your assignment, is just look at the basic meaning. What's what's the information here? What's a paraphrase of it? Now, here's a, a paraphrase of the sonnet. And kind of, uh, we're diminishing it into prose here. The speaker says that he has traveled through lots of golden terrain. He had read a lot of poems. And people had told him about the Homeric domain, but he had never breathed its air till he heard Chapman speak out. Then he felt like an astronomer discovering a new planet, or like an explorer who discovered the Pacific, whose men stood astonished trying to guess what he had discovered. All right, that gives you a prose meaning of the poem. Uh, that can help you understand some things about it. But mostly what that does is tell is it reveals to you how much is going on in the language that that paraphrase doesn't capture. That's another strategy to use is to think about what triggered the poem. Uh, a poem happens because something has happened. You know, you write a poem in response to something. Uh, so it, it helps to think about what happened right before the poem started. Well, in this one, that's fairly obvious, right? Uh, 
Keats had read this Chapman translation of Homer. That's the inciting incident. That's the trigger that makes the poem get going. It's usually a good idea to think about what that was. I mean, with uh, with Wordsworth's sonnet, it, the trigger would be him standing there looking at the city of London early in the morning. That's what triggered his, his uh, thoughts and inspired him to write a poem. All right, another category you can think about is structure. What's the structure of the sonnet? Now, this is this is another Italian sonnet. It's got an octave and a sestet. It rhymes A-B-B-A, A-B-B-A, C-D, C-D, C-D. Uh, there are two rhyme sounds in the octave, the uh, old and een, and two rhyme sounds in the sestet, eyes and in. Um, now, it also fits a... Uh, uh, the, the structure of a Italian sonnet rhetorically. That is, the first eight lines are kind of like, I never knew Homer till I read Chapman. The sestet, the last six lines, are, then I felt like this. Right? So it's a setup and a payoff. It's got that structure to it. Again, that helps you understand how the poem's working. Another thing to look at when you're looking at a poem is what's the climax? What's the climactic moment? What is it all leading up to? That can be very important. Uh, and the climax here, I think, is very clearly that image of Cortez staring at the Pacific. Uh, by the way, we know, it, it, you sh- or you should know, or your footnote would tell you, it actually wasn't Cortez who discovered the Pacific. It was Balboa. But Balboa has too many syllables, so uh, Keats said Cortez. Um so that gives us an idea. If that's, the, if that's the climax, the staring at the Pacific, why is that the climax? What's special about that? Uh, one thing you might think is, why, does, why is that more important or more significant than the image of the astronomer who discovers a new planet? Um, now the next uh, uh, category that uh, you can think about when you're doing a poem is, where does it shift gears? Uh, a poem doesn't stay in a steady state the whole time. That would be boring. What changes as the poem goes along? What moves? Now, we've already talked about the um, the octave and the sestet, the rhyme scheme, and that fits with a one change that happens in the poem, then and now. The first eight lines, the octave, are, that's what it was like then. The sestet, the last six lines, are this is what it's like now. You can also divide the poem up into sentences. There are two sentences. The first is four lines. The second is ten lines. The first sentence is all about ignorance. I didn't know about these things. The second sentence is all about discovery. Here's what I learned. All right, And you can break that down even further. The first four lines are about general realms that uh, Keats was familiar with, kind of literature in general. Then the next four lines are about Homer's domain. It's more, it gets more specific. Then lines 9 and 10 are about a solo astronomer who discovers a planet. Then lines 11 through 14 are about Cortez and his men discovering the Pacific Ocean. So you can see, just in that outline, some nice balances. General realms, a specific realm. One uh, astronomer, many men. A planet versus the Pacific Ocean. The poem is setting up these kinds of parallels and contrasts. Um, Next, think about the emotional arc of the poem. Uh, As We've been talking about shifting gears. Well, what are they shifting to? Uh, a poem is not going to, shouldn't feel the same at the end as it does at the beginning, or what's the point of it? So ask yourself, how do things feel differently? Well, I think this one moves from a kind of a confident experience, oh, I know all about poetry, to admitting ignorance, you know, I never knew about this place, and it ends with the astonishment of a new discovery. So there's a little emotional journey that that the speaker goes on, you know, from experience to ignorance to astonishment. That's a very good way of 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 or thinking about how a poem works. What's the emotional arc? Uh, as all, in all of this, you should be paying very particular attention to the words. Um, think about 
parts of speech. Uh, for instance, I think one thing that's striking about this poem is that all of these nouns referring to places, realms, states, kingdoms, islands, expanse, planet, Pacific, right? It's, it's dominated by those. Also, look for related words, kind of chains of words that mean have similar meanings. Here there's a chain about seeing and watching. Seen, watcher, kin, eagle eyes, stared. That's another uh, pattern you might want to look at. Uh, then think about just the, the, the contexts of the words. In this poem, we have words about traveling, words that come from the world of sailing, of exploring, of astronomy. Um, those are the kinds of contexts that you get for things. And finally, uh, the diction. Uh, this this uh, uh, poem has a lot of archaic words, realms, goodly, bards, fealty, demean. Um, and for each of those, think about, well, why does it do that? Why all of, for instance, why all of the archaic words? Well, I think that highlights the sense of ancient importance of Homer, right? This is an old realm. This isn't new, newfangled. This is something old that is being rediscovered. Um, and that, again, it's very interesting. Think about all this diction of archaic words and the, in the context of fresh discovery. Uh, that's a very interesting contrast that Keats has pointed out that you might not think about if you didn't look very particularly at what kinds of words he's using. Another, another good uh, thing to look at in any poem is the idea of agency. That is, who is the main actor in the poem? And does the main actor change as the poem progresses? Now here, and, and in many poems, one of the main actors is certainly the speaker. And by the way, we don't refer to uh, the, the speaker of the poem as Keats. Keats is the author of the poem. The speaker is a character who is speaking the poem. That's a, a subtle distinction sometimes, but I think it's important to keep that separate. Uh, so when you refer to, in the same way in a novel you would refer to the narrator, in a poem, refer to the speaker. So in this case, the speaker is clearly the main actor. You know, I have traveled and seen, uh, you know, I have been told, uh, I heard, uh, then I felt, all of those kinds of things. But there are other important actors in the poem, and they do things too. The bards hold islands. Homer rules an expanse. Chapman speaks out. A new planet swims into view. Uh, Cortez stares the Pacific. His men look at him. All right. So it, that's interesting. That it's not just the speaker who is doing things. There are other other agents in the poem. And think about what they're doing there. How would the be, the poem be different if you didn't have those? Um, and again, all of these, I'm just kind of giving you the, the kind of the beginnings of the kind of questions you would ask. Uh, for instance, I mentioned that the poem moves from the image of the astronomer to the image of Cortez. Well, you think about that. Why is that? What's, why is when one image replaces another in a poem, it's usually a sign that the that the poet was unsatisfied with the first image and wants to improve upon it or add to it in some way. So why is the Cortez a better metaphor for this discovery than the astronomer was? Uh, well, the astronomer discovering the planet is just a single guy. He's all alone. Cortez is with a group of people. It's social. It's communal. And maybe Keats is suggesting that literature is more like that. It's not just a solo thing you do all alone by yourself. It's something where you're in a community of fellow readers. Uh, also, the astronomer discovers a planet that, you know, tiny, distant, that nobody has seen. Uh, but the Cortez is discovering the Pacific Ocean, this giant thing that other people had seen before. You know, Cortez was or actually Balboa, but Cortez was not the first one to see the Pacific. But at the same time, it, he was. It was a discovery. And that fits perfectly with what Keats is saying about 
uh, reading Homer. Lots of people had read Homer before. Homer wasn't a new discovery of Keats, but it was new to him. It was like he was discovering this for the very first time. Uh, you know, so an astronomer looking at a planet might literally be the first one who had ever seen that planet. But uh, Cortez and his discovery are different. All right, and finally, another good strategy to use is think about how if things were different. You know, every every choice that the poet makes, he could have made a different one. For instance, he could have, instead of writing in first person, it could have been in third person. He said, many have traveled in the realms of gold, and they have goodly states and kingdoms seen. Uh, but that would diminish the urgency and uh, the uh, nature of it. Um, but you might not think about that if you didn't think about, well, why did he do it this way? How would it be different if he had changed something? Um, you know, how would it uh, how would it be different if you started out with the idea of reading Homer? So if it started out something like, uh, I once heard Chapman speak out loud and bold. He told me of a wide expanse unseen. Okay, well, that would change the structure radically. I mean, it, it's uh, the poem really has this structure where it begins again from from ignorance, uh, from confidence to ignorance to discovery. Um, so you wouldn't have the the strength of that pattern if you changed it in that way. All right, and again, these are just some some uh, ideas to spark ideas. I hope for you, but those are some ways and some kinds of questions that you can consider when you are analyzing your own sonnet. Um, I hope that was helpful. If you have questions, of course, please feel free to address them to me. Uh, now, for next time, I would like you to read the selections in the Norton Anthology of William Blake's Songs of Innocence and of Experience. Uh, this is not all the, the entire book. It's a selection of poems from that. But I'd like you to read all the ones that are in the Norton Anthology. And I'd like you to particularly look at poems that are set up as parallel. So each, both the Songs of Innocence and the Songs of Experience have a, an introduction. They both have a poem called Holy Thursday. They both have a nurse's song. Uh, one has a poem called Infant Joy. The other has a poem called Infant Sorrow. One has a poem called The Lamb. The other has a poem called The Tiger. So think about how these, these poems kind of speak to each other, how they work in contrast with each other, and what Blake is saying about these states of innocence and experience. Uh, another thing I'd like you to do as you're reading is to look for common repeated images and ideas and themes. Uh, for instance, you'll see a lot of reference to, to clouds, to weeping, to children, uh, to chains, uh, so and some other things too. So look about, notice when images repeat, when the same thing comes up in several different poems, and think about why Blake is doing that, what he's saying about with those different uses of the same image. So for next time, read William Blake's Songs of Innocence and of Experience. Thank you for your attention, and I will talk to you next time.